would like to ask you to turn to John chapter 11. It is a long passage, the story of the healing, the resurrection of, but first the death of Lazarus. We're going to, throughout the sermon, read this entire chapter. I, I think you'll be most helpful, helped by having it either on your phone or opening the Bible. It will probably be also on the screen here as well. Could you name the most important days in your life? What would, they, what would come to your mind, the most important days of your life? Well, if you were at the men's retreat, I saw some of those men whispering. Our speaker pointed out four of the most important days of a man's life or of really any person's life. The first, he said, was the day of his birth. I think that's kind of important for all of us. The second would be, and not everyone experiences this, the day of his spiritual birth, his conversion, his coming to Christ. The third, I wonder what you might say, he said, would be the day one meets Jesus or the day of his death. The last day, he said, was today. Today is a very important day. I want to talk to you about the day of our death. Have you thought about it recently? You are going to die. The Bible says that it is very wise to think on these things. Are you ready? Are you ready to die? Our modern culture... And there's probably something, a part of us, that calls this kind of talk or thought about death as dark or morbid or unhealthy to think on, these things. Our, as John prayed in our pastoral prayer, our church family has a funeral tomorrow. They have been thinking about death on Saturday, I'll be doing another funeral. I'm thinking more on death these days. This morning as I drove in, I did a little detour and drove through the cemetery here in Linden. As I prayed and thinking about this passage of Scripture and remembering your loved ones who were there, as well as countless stones that symbolize people who have come and are now gone. Let me share you some key verses on the theme of death. For the wages or the punishment or the payment of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. Or, it is appointed unto mankind once to die, but after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Or Ecclesiastes 7, 2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for, the, for death is 
the destiny of everyone and the living should take it to heart. Now, we come to a wonderful passage this morning. A passage that includes strong conversations, puzzling insights into deep emotions that Jesus has. Grieving family members because they're bereaved of a loved one. A funeral. I guess we could say a funeral with a closed casket. And so much more. So what I want to do is in John chapter 11, it's a long passage, and I want to read through it and discuss it, breaking it down through five stages of action that, if you remember, several weeks ago, missionary Timothée DeVee shared with us, and he said there are, often in a story, there are five stages of action, and I, I want us to kind of look at this story through that kind of lens. A good story sets up with a, number one, a situation. You know, once upon a time, there lived a boy and a girl. And then there's rising action. That boy and girl fell in love, and but the families hated each other, and they wouldn't agree to let them get married. Then you get to a climax, some part in the story. Everyone came together, They got along and they got married. I know that's not how Romeo and Juliet works. And then there's the falling action. So they had the wedding, the family settled down, they had children, and they now all get along. And then the final resolution, and they lived happily ever after. Now let's trace these five stages through this glorious passage, John chapter 11. We begin by seeing the setting. Verses 1 and 2. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with oil or ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. We'll see that at the end of this passage in chapter 12. So you have the setting, you have Lazarus. He's very ill. We'll find that very quickly. They're in the village of Bethany. And we're going to find out quickly, Jesus and his disciples are at another location several days away. And Jesus is close friends with them and has a relationship with them. And we also find out just from the context that the setting is, things are not so well with Jesus and his popularity, at least with the religious settlement establishment, so much so that they want to stone him or at least arrest him and to kill him if they can. That's the setting. Number two, we find rising action, and that's a big part of what we're going to see. Most of the story or a lot of the story is rising action, building tension, conversations that take place, and I want to look at it through the lenses of four episodes. So let's take these four episodes as we read the story. Episode number one begins in verse three. And I call it the strange case of Jesus' lack of urgency. So the sisters, that's Mary and Martha, we find out Mary's name in the story. The sisters sent to him saying, Lord, I don't know how they did it. Some word got to them. They said, deliver a message. Lord, 
He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, I call this a strange case of the lack of urgency because I tell you what, if I heard that my loved one, somebody that I deeply loved, was in a serious, serious problem and a condition, and I found out about that, and I knew that I could do something to help him or her, I would have an urgency that Jesus doesn't have in this passage, or at least expresses to have. It says here that when he heard that he was ill, and it says that he loved, her, loved them, so when he heard that he was ill, he stayed another two days where he was. Strange. Then we go to the next episode, verses 17 through 16. I call it an odd conversation with Jesus and his disciples. We're going to spend a lot of time on each of these episodes, but I want you to see this odd conversation to some degree. It says in verse 7, Then after he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. And that is actually where Jerusalem is, and that would be where Bethany is. So he's, he's saying, Let's now go. Now let's go to visit them. Now the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, to kill you, to take rocks and kill you, throw stones at you until you die. And you're going to go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. That's a strange thing to say. What? what? We're going to travel days because he's taking a nap? Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they, the disciples, thought he meant he's taking a Rest and sleep. I mean, the disciples do this all the time. You find it in all the Gospels. They're like the foil to Jesus. I mean, quite often Jesus will say something. Jesus has a deep meaning behind it, and they just think everything on the surface. You know, Jesus says, they say, Jesus, let's eat. Jesus says, I have food and meat that you know not of. And they go, oh, did somebody bring a meat? And they're saying, and Jesus said, no, I have something that matters so much more. In this case, he's talking so deeply. Then Jesus told them plainly. Okay, you want to hear it? Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. 
So Thomas, yes, that's doubting Thomas. We're going to learn of him later in John. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, okay, let us also go that we may die with him. I don't think he means die with Lazarus. I, 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 don't, I think he's saying we're going to go, and if we go, we're going to go right into the hotbed of all of the opposition that Jesus is facing, and we're going to get arrested and maybe killed as the threat has been told to us. Okay. And I call this an odd conversation. There's a fear of arrest. Doubting Tom, Thomas even thinks they'll die from it. Jesus says puzzling things about light and darkness, 12 hours in a day. I think he's saying, my time is limited, just like the daylight. It's limited. And I have work to do that the Father has called me to do, and I'm going to go do it. And he says, he's sleeping. I must wake him. And they're all puzzled. And he says, no, I'm going there. And I am glad I was not there to save him so that you would believe. You see, we find out that the disciples believe but they don't believe like they need to yet. They have a faith, but it is real, but it is really immature. They believe, but they don't believe yet in the way that they need to, and Jesus longs for that to happen in their life. Okay, so that's all in the context of this man dies. Now we move to the third episode as this rising tension as he's going to head towards his friend who is now dead, Lazarus. Third episode, a strong belief, the strong, and we see in this third episode the strong belief of a grief-stricken Martha. Look at verse 17. This is the same Martha that we read in Luke chapter 10 who she's so busy about the house and is complaining about Mary not doing any of the work but is sitting at the feet of Jesus Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. If, if you do some digging, you see that in Jewish thought at that time, at least a little bit after Jesus' time, it's probably during Jesus' time, there was this mindset that at least the first three days, it's possible that the Spirit hovered over this body that was dead and maybe resuscitated, possibly but by the fourth day, surely that spirit was gone. He, it's been at least four days he's in the tomb. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to, Mary, to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house you got two grieving women. I mean, everybody grieves differently. Have you experienced that? One person's broken this way, and they're going to just respond this way, and another one's going to respond this way. Martha gets up and says, I'm going to go meet Jesus. And, and I think for both of them, there's this disappointment. There's like, I love Jesus. I'm glad he's here. But there's maybe this sigh of like, why didn't he come? Why didn't, why didn't he come? Okay, I'm going to go meet Jesus. And so Martha goes out and said to Jesus, Lord, 
If you had been here, I just I think of Jesus saying to the disciples, it was good that I wasn't here. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I love this. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I don't think Martha says that though, saying, I think he might still raise my brother Lazarus from the dead. I don't think he means that, but I think it's a, I still believe in you. I still believe you. I still believe you are, the, you are special. You are from God. You are the sent one. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. The Jews, most of the Jews believed in a resurrection of the dead. There were the Pharisees, which usually we say, oh, Pharisees are bad, they're hypocrites. But the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. There was another category, if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of the Sadducees, they did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. But this woman does, and she says, I know he will rise on the great resurrection on the last day. In verse 25, Jesus said, and I've used this passage over and over again in so many funerals. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those are just so familiar that it, they don't, sound as they should, they are kind of odd when a human being says them. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he then says, do you believe this, Martha? Martha? And then what comes out of the mouth of Martha, this grieving woman, is one of the most beautiful, concise, strong confessions to date of Jesus Christ. She says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God who is coming into the world. Martha says, oh, if only you could be here, and yet I believe you. So you got episode number one, Jesus isn't urgent. That's strange if you love him. Episode number two, Jesus talk having this cryptic, in some ways, conversation with disciples. He's sleeping. No, he's actually dead. And I'm glad he died while I wasn't there so that your faith would be, so that you would believe Now let's go. Disciples worrying that they're going to die because of the persecution that's on Jesus. And then we come to this story and grieving lady number one is overwhelmed but believes. Last episode of this rising action is number four, the puzzling emotions of Jesus with Mary and the mourners. The puzzling emotions. When Jesus, verse 28, when she, that's Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, hey, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, Mary rose quickly and went to him. 
Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where, Mary had, where Martha had met him. So in verse 31, it says, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, I think what's going on is you have Mary, and then you have these Jews that are mourners, and in that ancient culture, friends of the village, and sometimes even paid people, would come, and they were official mourners. They would come, and they would weep and wail. I I only seen this one time kind of like this. I was at a funeral in Fenton at a primitive Baptist church of some family member of this church. And while I was in the funeral, during the funeral service, the preacher was preaching and the entire sermon, there was a, a group of ladies in the front row wailing, literally wailing. And it was like, I'd never seen that. And I don't think it was out of grief per se. It was the custom to do that out loud in this very public way. I think there's something going on here. And see, here comes Mary. She is weeping. The Jews are coming with her weeping. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. Now, I call this category the puzzling emotions, because if you're reading with me either on the screen or in an ESV Bible, and even I think it's in the NIV Bible, you don't get this, but this is, I love, God's word is so faithfully translated to today, but this is not the best translation of this. In fact, the New Living Translation has a better translation. I want to read it to you. It says that when Jesus came and saw them weeping and the Jews who had come also weeping, it doesn't say he was deeply moved. The New Living Translation says, a deep anger welled up within him. Sounds strange? Puzzling? Why would Jesus have a deep anger welling up within him? It wasn't merely that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And verse 34, and Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they said, come, Lord, and see. And Jesus wept. There's emotion number two. First is anger. And then it says in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Did not Jesus know that Lazarus would be raised by his own power through the power of the Father? Did Jesus know that he was about to do this? Why would he weep? So the Jews said, Lord, see how he loved him. But some of them said, oh, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man? That's chapter nine. Oh, if he who did not open the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Again, we find Mary grieved and saying, if only you had been here. And they're weeping. Verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then we find Jesus angry, at least angry in the spirit. Didn't say he threw a tantrum in his anger. 
It didn't say he yelled in his anger. It just says he was angry in his spirit. Why? And then it says Jesus wept. Why? Well, I think we could quickly think, well, Jesus loved. He shows sympathy. He sees sheep without a shepherd. He is a shepherd caring for his sheep, and he sees two dear friends mourning the loss. He sees the suffering of sin and evil because, as I read at the beginning, all death is ultimately caused because of what death, what sin has done in this world. Death has come because of sin. And he is, I think this is why he is angry. It doesn't tell us why he's angry. In fact, he is angry, I think, because he sees how sin and Satan, who provokes us to sin, and death and suffering has wreaked havoc on his family and his friend and his world and his nation. The last enemy to be defeated will be death. This is a righteous anger as he sees the impact that it has on humanity and he has come to bring the solution as the one who is the resurrection and the life. There is so much going on here. Now, it brings us now to the climax of the story. You know, the climax of a story is where the most, like in a movie, all the most attention would be given to that. We got to get that scene right. We need to put the most money and energy and effort into that scene, that music, in the scene, all of that, so that we can not miss it. And we go, wow. Here in the story, it begins with verse 38. Then Jesus, again, deeply moved. Again, it should be, again angered, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing out, standing around, so that they will believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, Come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. If you were to take that one paragraph, I did that this week, just just highlight all the words that Jesus gives. He starts with a command, take away the stone. He then gives a reminder to Martha and Mary. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He's reminding them. It's, in a sense, it's a promise to him, them. And then there's a prayer to the Father. Thank you, Father, that you heard me. You always hear me. But I'm saying this on account of those. I want to instruct them as I pray because I want them to get it. I want them to see the power of God through me because it is so, so good for them. And then he gives that glorious command, Lazarus, come out. And he gives the command to unbind unbind him. 
from his, his grave clothes. I love what one, I, I read this story years ago that a boy in England was being taught about this story the catechism, in a catechism class, and the instructor asked this question to the whole classroom, why did Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth? And there was a silence as people thought about it, and a young voice burst out saying, in case they all, all the dead bodies in the tomb area came forth. You see, this is the resurrection and the life. And when he speaks a command, he always gets it. The resurrection and life speaks. The command of God gives life. I think of what Jesus said to his disciples when they are puzzled by this transportation discussion and then Lazarus' illness or death. I was glad I wasn't there to save him so that you would have faith. Jesus loves them so much that he lets them suffer to show his life-giving power so that they would believe on him. And then we find, and I'm just going to go quickly through this, we find the falling action and resolution. It, it's kind of like it's interesting how this ends. It just says, some believe, look at verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Pharisees are against Jesus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, they gathered this council and said, what are we to do for this man's sign? performs many signs, and if we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. We have it good right now. And if the Romans come, we won't have it good right now. We like our status quo. Let's get rid of Jesus. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, for do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? Now, note verse 51 into 52. He did not say, this man is against Jesus, and God is going to speak through this man who is against Jesus. He did not say this of his own accord, but he was being the high priest that year. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, I think Caiaphas is saying, we're going to kill him so the nation doesn't get consumed by the Romans. But God was speaking through him, ironically, in another message. Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And we should all read this in the lenses of chapter 10 where he said, I'm the good shepherd and I gather my sheep and I lay down my life for my sheep. They are my own and I lift my life up. No one takes it from me. So from that day on, verse 53, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus would therefore no longer walk openly. And I, I'm gonna skip through this. He, and, and there was a lot doubting and he, he was careful, and then there was a Passover, and it says, I want you to just look into the chapter 12. It says, six days 
Before the Passover, chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for them there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who would betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is too valuable to waste on, uh, on Jesus. And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may be kept for the day. Leave her alone so that she may be kept it, keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. That she may keep it for the day of my burial. How can the, the resurrection and the life get buried? So, the resolution of this story I think ultimately is not that they believed, and some didn't believe, is Jesus dies for the nation. And not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God. The one who is the resurrection and the life will die for the children of God. The one who raises the dead to life will be buried to bring eternal life to all who believe. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? I bet if I asked this question and I asked a raise of hands, those that believe that, most, if not all, would raise their hand high. Maybe a few would not, and we're glad you're here. And I hope you come to see that he is. I hope you come to see that this story is real and it means something for everyone and that he really is the resurrection of life. But do you know what that means? If you raise your hand to say, yes, I believe he is the resurrection and the life, do you really mean it with the everyday situations of your life? I want to end by mainly listing and just saying a few things about five, five applications, not applications, but five things, lessons, truths that we must truly embrace as Christian followers, as I see in this text. Number one, Jesus is the resurrection, and he is the life. If I, I, I ask my kids this sometimes when I'm driving. I asked this to Mary recently. If you could pick a superpower and be a superhero, what would you pick? Maybe one would think, I'd like to be bulletproof, or I would like to fly or change the weather, or be invisible. For Jesus, he's the life. He's more than a superhero. He is the son of God. But he is the life. And no one in the universe has life unless he chooses it for, to have life. And he can take life away. And he is the one who gives life when the life has already been taken away. He resurrects the life. This is Jesus. Do you really believe that? When you pray to Jesus, do you believe he is the life? He is the resurrection. Do you pray and think about him that way? Jesus says, do you believe me? When he asked Martha this question after saying, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet they'll live. They'll raise from the dead. They'll be in that grave in Linden or wherever else, and they will rise like the sun because of his word saying, be risen someday. And everyone who lives and believes in me, okay, they might die, but it's as though they'll never die because even though they'll be put in a tomb, they don't die. Their soul is with God forever, and they will, their body will be raised from the dead they are in Christ. He is their life. And we find this trace throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus, it says at the beginning in John 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Or John 5, 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not believe in the Son does not see life, but instead the wrath of God remains on him. This is glory, friends. Brothers and sisters this morning, please do not miss these most familiar words and phrases and description of Jesus. He is the resurrection of the life. Take that to your prayers this week. Take that as you remember who he is and who you call upon. This is the glory of God. May we see it. Life in the midst of a dying world. Oh, do we need him? He shines brightly in the midst of it. He shines and brings light in the midst of painful funerals. He shines his glorious light in the midst of painful experiences and difficulties in our lives. I pray that we will learn the glory of this truth more than just those at a funeral when they grieve and remember that we'll see dad or mom or sister or whoever or spouse again. What does it mean that he is the resurrection of the life? With the pain you feel, when your Christian friends treat you so poorly and it just feels like a death to you. What does it mean that he is the life when the doctor tells you that you have cancer? Death is at work in you. What does it mean, what does this passage in truth mean for me, when I am trying to hang on to, when you're trying to hang on to a relationship in marriage or a friendship that seems to be just slipping away and dying. Well, let's look at the second truth. God's plan to display the glory of resurrection in life is the greatest good. You might think as you pray to God, oh, the greatest good would be for you to keep, get here and heal Lazarus before he dies. But God's plan is to show his resurrection life as his greatest good, even if it means something else. If Jesus said, it says in this passage, it, Lazarus' sickness that led to death, is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 4. God is so good, brothers and sisters, or friend who is not yet a Christian. God is so good. He does the very best things in the world that he might display his power and glory, which includes his life-giving, resurrecting power. He does it by converting and changing souls. If you are a Christian here, the resurrection power came upon your soul and you believe. That's a miracle of him saying live. 
And he does it by transforming our dead spiritual nature and making us new people. Some of you would tell me, Pastor, if you knew me before I became a Christian, I was so different. There's no other explanation that the resurrection and the life came and gave me a new life. And he does it by showing his resurrection life in the midst of our suffering. Do you know that for Christians, Jesus desires for us to actually experience, recognize, and embrace emotional pain. There's a little emotional pain throughout this, this chapter. It's his, it's his will for us to experience it. And we're going to experience it through difficult circumstances like deaths and through difficult people, which feels like deaths of relationship. And both are devastating. He does this so that his life would be seen in the context of death all around us. His life would shine out and be seen in the contrast to the death that is devastating, and he picks us up and heals and helps. The glory of his resurrection life is displayed when death is available, and he shows his power. It's all around us. The third thing I want you to see in this passage is God's love. This is so important, guys. God's love often means more suffering. I know that some of you would say, I know. God's love often means more suffering so that we would experience his life and then believe on him and glorify him. Isn't that the story? Isn't that what happens in this story? It says in verse 5, Jesus loved Mary, her sister, Martha, And Lazarus, so, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He says here, he loved them. And so when he heard them, he didn't go, this wasn't, he says, so when he heard this, he stayed. Jesus loved Paul, the apostle, and we find this in different passages of scripture. So he says, no, I will Not take your suffering away, but I will show you my glory and power in your suffering. Jesus allows us to sometimes die inside. Have you felt that way? Are you feeling that way? So that we will experience his resurrection life as he shows us his faithfulness. And he may do that in our course of life to the day we die. He'll say, I'm not going to give you What you ask for, I'm going to give you better. I'm going to show you my life in the midst of your suffering, and I'm going to care for you all along the way, and you're going to see my glory, and you wouldn't have it any other way as you get to see what I do in your life. Paul tells us that. He was not suicidal, but he wanted to die. 2 Corinthians 1, he says, I want you to be aware of the affliction I experienced He said, I was so burdened beyond strength, I despaired of life itself. I just just despaired of life. I just, it's going to be over. Might as well just take me. I mean, that's what Elijah says after a great victory. Just take me, God. And in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 1, all these burdens, indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. I wonder if you in your life are under circumstances where it just seems so hopeless, so frustrating in your relationship, 
in your unexplainable emotions of depression, in your finances, or literally with somebody that is dying or died, that you feel like you've received the sentence of death. Paul did, but he says in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 1, but that, this affliction that makes me feel like I have a sentence of death, that was to make me rely not on myself. Oh, I relied on myself way too much. I needed to feel like everything was taken from me and I had no other hope except God. And I would rely not on my own strength or on doctors or on friends because they could just fail. But on a God, it says here, these are the words, but on a God who raises the dead. And he says, God did deliver me. But God let him suffer. God let the disciples suffer. God let Lazarus and Mary and Martha suffer so that they would see God's glory know God's life, and believe in him. The God who raises the dead. Do you know a God who raises the dead? Do you really believe him? Do you pray to a God who raises the dead in your circumstances? And sometimes you say, God, I don't know what's best, but I know that you're a God who raises the dead, and would you do that in my life in this situation? Even if it's just in my heart, seeing things in a different way and not losing hope. What tragedy is killing you right now? Inside, could it be that he's letting you despair of life so that you could learn to rely not on yourself but on the God who raises the dead? The God who said, Lazarus, come forth. I was glad I was not there. It is for God's glory and it's for your faith and it's all in deep love because God knows it is the best thing for us. What kind of God do you believe in? It's not a God who just lets us go through ease but loves us too much. Do you believe in this Jesus who is the resurrection of life? Number four, truly believing in his son is the most important thing we can ever do. Jesus said, I'm glad that you, I was not there so that you would believe. Paul said, you let me despair of life so that you would teach me to rely on you. Our father Abraham in the Old Testament He was promised to be the father of many nations. He's near 100 years old. His wife is close behind. His body is good as dead. She's way past childbearing years. God said, you're going to have a child through this woman and through your seed. Will you learn to believe that I'm the one who brings life when there's only death? That's faith. It's faith to believe in God's promises. Have you found yourself in an impossible situation? Do you need life from the dead? Do you believe that either Jesus will get, do it or give you the help to obey him and trust him and see suffering with him as better than comfort without him? What is your life? I guess God will show his faithfulness by raising the dead and he can do it in his way and his timing. May it be that he, maybe it's he will bring you out of a loneliness and he'll do it in his timing. He will heal you or sustain you or give you help in your prolonged illness or frustration in school or with parents. Oh, that we would grow in our faith in him, that we won't 
not just while everything is sailing smoothly or smoothly sailing and we're just comfortable. He makes us uncomfortable now in this life because he loves us so that we'll learn to trust in him and rely on his promises and truly know him and experience his faithfulness, enjoy his true life now and forevermore, which leads to the last point. Jesus, the resurrection and life, suffered our death to give us life that never ends. Oh, would you know that? If you're here and not a Christian, Jesus is the life because he took our death. Jesus lifts us from the grave in our sin and, and from our future death because he was buried for our sins. Lazarus was raised from the dead in this passage, but he was gonna die again. Jesus was raised after dying on the cross and now reigns at the Father's right hand. He will someday destroy the last enemy death until then, he is at the right hand interceding. He is shepherding us. He is praying for us and he will keep his promises forever. Dear friend, if you're not a Christian or you are someone who thinks you are, but you have not actively or practically, practically trusted in him, you don't go to him for daily help. You have no desire to know or follow him. I offer you his life. You are dead in your sins and you can't get to God. No more than dead Lazarus could ever get out of the tomb and go to Jesus without Jesus first initiating it. He offers you life and he gave you, he offers you the life he gave Lazarus but much more. He offers you something better. The life that raised Jesus from the dead. If you believe on him, if you will turn away from your own self-trust and trust in him, he will save you this morning and make you a child of God, a true Christian, his disciple. Would you do that this morning? If you believe on him today, it is because he is, he said to your soul, come out of the grave. He calls you through this word and this preacher this morning. Would you come out and would you come to him? Let's pray. Father, as we finish with this song, oh God, make it our expression of faith that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is our hope and life and death. Oh God, we praise you. I'm ashamed of being a Christian so long and still feeling like I'm such an elementary school of learning the, the reality of how this truth works out in my everyday life when my faith is tested. I pray that all of us would grow to just cherish Jesus and believe with all our hearts that he is the resurrection of life and witness boldly because of it. Face our sufferings boldly. Comfort others lovingly and compassionately and with faith. Oh God, please help us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.